Philippians chapter 2 in your Bible, please. Philippians chapter 2. If you're a first-time guest with us here today, we handed out worship guides, and, and there's a perforated card in there that you can fill out and, and then rip out and, and drop in the offering plate. We'd love for you to do that so we could have a record of your visit. It's also in the seat back in front of you. If you'd do that even as I speak today and so that we could have a record of your visit, that would mean the world to us. Philippians chapter 2. If you didn't bring your Bible, the verse will be up on the screen. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18 in our study this morning. The Bible says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke. In the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. The title of the message today is Working Out the Working In. Working Out the working in. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt that there was something in your Christian life that you just couldn't do? Meaning something the Bible says God expects of you, but you feel almost hopeless to live it out. I anticipate for those that were here last week that maybe this thought occurred to you as I preach that you are to be like Christ. Meaning what Paul said, we, we had a ladder up here and he came all the way down from equality with God and he climbed all the way down the ladder in humility and he died a death by way of crucifixion. Humiliating death, a painful death and he did it to serve the interest of us. And then Paul in essence said, now look at Jesus. Have that same mind. Have that same attitude. Demonstrate that same humility. And if you're anything like me, you're thinking, I can't be like Jesus. I'm not like Jesus. I, I can't show Christ-like humility to her. She hurt me. And I can't show Christ-like humility to him. He betrayed me. And I can't climb down the ladder to serve their interests. They stabbed me in the back. Telling me to be like Jesus to him or telling me to be like Jesus to her. It, it's, it's like a coach. Showing a clip of Steph Curry shooting three-pointers to his basketball team and then telling them, now go and do that. I'm not Steph Curry. It's like a piano student making her piano, her, a piano teacher making her piano student listen to a clip of Beethoven playing the piano and say, now go to the piano and do that. I'm not Beethoven. And you hear Paul say, be like Jesus, and maybe you're thinking, I'm not Jesus. I can climb down the ladder of humility for a lot of people, but not them. I can't do that. And I'm thinking the Philippian believers must have felt the same way because Paul wrote to them in verses 12 and 13, and he reassured them. He said, you can't, but God can. See, the great thing about God is that he not only gives us the example to follow. This is great, church. He gives us the power to do so. And Paul is going to tell us that God is working in us 
both the desire and the ability to live in harmony and humility with other believers. And now it's up to us to work out what he has so graciously worked in our hearts. Look at verse 12 again. Paul says, wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God which worketh in you, both the will and do of his good pleasure. What is Paul telling the Philippian believers? He's saying, hey, listen, I'm not there with you, so please let me hear that you're doing this, that you are working out what God is working in. Now, now I want you to look at your Bible and notice very carefully the wording in verse 12. Paul doesn't say work for your salvation. Listen, he doesn't say work on your salvation. He says work out your salvation because the truth is you can't work for your salvation. You don't do something to please God so that he will save you. Listen, your salvation, thank God, is a gift that comes freely when you trust in Jesus' death to pay the penalty for your sin. And once you accept that gift, once you come to terms with the fact that I can't get baptized enough to wash my sins away and get to heaven, and I can't behave good enough to get to heaven, it doesn't matter what church I join, I can't get to heaven by church membership, it doesn't matter how benevolent I am, no amount of benevolence can get me to heaven. When you come to grips with that and you place your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and you're saved, watch, Paul says, now you live that salvation out. No, this is important. You translate into reality what God is working in your heart. That is, you work out the salvation that is deep inside of you. And here's the good news. Everything that God wants you to work out, he's already worked in. Meaning anything he calls on you to do, any step down the ladder he calls upon you to make in humility and harmony with other believers, listen, he's going to help you to do that how well you find a desire inside you to do it and you're thinking where did that come from it came from God you sense that you have the ability to do something God wants you to do who put that there God put that ability there that's what Paul means when he says for it is God which worketh in you both to will to want to do it the desire and then to do the ability to do of his good pleasure this is incredible Now, you had to have been here all through chapter 2 to really understand the significance of this because the ultimate idea in chapter 2 is, 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 listen, church, I want you to live in harmony with each other. Here's how. You live in humility toward each other. Jesus gives the example of how you do that. You climb down the ladder to serve the interests of other people before yourself. But don't think it's up to you. Because I know the human being well enough to know that there are just some people we can't show humility towards. And there's some people we just can't live in harmony with. And Paul takes the time in verse 12 and 13 to reassure us that it's God that's working that ability in us. We just have to yield to him and so it works itself out towards others. And here's here's the great thing about the text he moves on and he tells us that when we are working out what God is working in there will be an absence of two things in our church murmurings and disputings if you want to apply this to your home you can apply it to your home as well if you want to apply it to to your workplace you can apply it to your workplace as well when believers are showing humility toward one another and working out what God is working in, Paul said there will be no murmurings and no disputings. Look at verse 14. 
do all things, he said, without murmurings and disputings. Murmuring simply means complaining. It means grumbling. It doesn't mean that you can't give your opinion humbly as to what you believe is right or, or maybe offer a solution for a problem that, you're, that you've identified. Murmuring means that you complain with a bad spirit. It means you're just a constant, grumpy person. Don't look to the person next to you who I'm preaching to. Disputing means arguing. It means being contentious. It's, it doesn't mean that you can't humbly sit down and, and have a debate of sorts about, about what you think is right or what you think is wrong. You need to be able to have that kind of civil conversation with other believers. It just means you don't have a contentious spirit. It doesn't mean you're not looking to pick a fight. Not looking to have an argumentative type attitude. And did you notice that each of these two things have to do with our words? With what comes out of our mouth. Paul is in essence saying this. When you work out what God is working in, it will affect the way you talk. There will be less complaining and more gratitude. And there will be less contention and more grace. In other words, a church that is working out what God is working in will be a grateful and gracious church. I want that kind of church. I began to think, what, what might that church look like? Oh, someone walked into Fellowship Baptist Church and it was a grateful and a gracious church. How would they know that? And so I got my story writing skills out. And I wrote a hypothetical scenario. Let's suppose a guest comes to our church. We have many guests today. We're thankful you're here. Maybe they've gotten the Be Our Guest invite card that we make available for our members to hand out at the Resource Center. And they decided to come. Since it's their first time, they're a little bit late, so they slip in the back and get a seat. Hearing about the refreshments after the service, this is a hypothetical story. We have no refreshments after today's service. But suppose we did, they make their way over to the fellowship hall. As they look over the table with everything on it, one of the ladies standing near them says, isn't this wonderful? Man, look at all the goodies. You know, most of these are homemade. Go ahead, help yourself. Oh, especially try some of these. I know who made them. You're going to love them. The guest fills his plate and wanders away from the table. A couple of men come up to talk to him. The guest is still impressed with the food. Who arranges all of this, he asks. Oh, the women plan it. I think maybe it rotates by months. I'm not sure. Different people bring different things. Man, people here are just so great, aren't they? It just seems like good things happen around here. Someone else comes up to him. Did you see that there's coffee over there in the corner? No, I didn't, but that sounds good. Well, let me help you get some. And they walk toward the coffee. The coffee is pouring into the cup and Cream and sugar are being stirred in. The visitor mentions that a friend of his visited the previous week and said that the church had terrific musicians on the platform. His friend particularly mentioned an older piano player who did something marvelous on the piano during the offertory, but he said today's piano player looked a little bit younger. Oh, the church member replied, that's Miss Margaret. Oh, last week she played an incredible offertory. She, she does a great job. We really enjoy her. Today's piano player was... Crystal, who plays regularly on Sunday mornings. Then we have Virginia, who plays on Wednesday nights. I'm telling you, we have the best music in our church. Didn't you like the guitars, too? Don't those guys do a good job? And the choir, weren't they phenomenal? Thank you. <laughs> the visitor takes his coffee and goes to sit by himself against one of the nearby walls, and he 
He looks out at what he sees, people sitting and talking, people hugging, people holding each other's children, people quietly cleaning up a spill and straightening the tables. No fussing, no complaining, no bickering, no side clicks. And the guest thinks to himself, there's just something about these people. They seem to enjoy each other. There's a whole lot of gratitude and grace going on in this place. In a few moments, someone else comes to sit by him. And the guest asks, how long has your pastor been here? This is the best part of the story, in my opinion. The member says, oh, we have two of them. They're father and son. Aren't they great? The younger, let me talk about the younger He's such a great preacher, and did you notice how handsome he is? And I can't think of a better way to conclude the story than that. Hey, that's a hypothetical scenario, but that is a little snapshot of what a church might look like when it's working out what God is working in. It's a church that is both grateful and gracious, a church that is free of complaining and contention. And by the way, that isn't a fairy tale land. That's not like the dream church. We should and we can be that kind of people. And when we are, two things happen, Paul says. First, our church glows for the gospel. That, that is, when unbelievers see the gratefulness and the graciousness among our congregation, they are drawn to the gospel that is so obviously working in and out of us and through us. Look at verse 14 of your Bible. Or verse 15, rather. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. Paul, Paul says, listen, when we're grateful and gracious, not complaining and not contending with one another, Here's what happens. You shine like bright stars in a dark night. Now listen, guests who may be without Christ see how we treat each other and they're drawn to that because they never see that kind of love and kindness and gentleness anywhere else. Everything else around them is crooked and perverse, harsh and hurtful. They don't see that kind of love and kindness in their family. They see spite and arguing, anger and hate, shouting and cruel comments. But this place is different. They don't see that kind of gentleness and graciousness at their work. They see cutthroat tactics and cattiness. They see underhandedness and deceit. They see crudeness and harassment. But there's something different about this place. Now are you getting it? When they come into this place and see graciousness and gratefulness they are seeing something that isn't so common in a crooked and perverse world. That's what the church ought to be. And by the way, we aren't, we aren't trying to be that to impress people. We aren't trying to be that so as to have a big church and to have a great reputation. We're trying to glow for the gospel. We're trying to make much of Jesus. How many have ever been to Chick-fil-A? Raise your hand. There's a difference between these two chain restaurants that you'll see on the screen. Please understand, if you work at McDonald's or you're a regular customer at McDonald's, um, it's okay. I eat at McDonald's too. 
But you're going to understand if you've been to both of these places, there is a, a very, very uh, different atmosphere between the two. Think about it. If they both serve the same exact food, let's just pretend they did. We know it's not even close, but if they did, then you tell me which one you would prefer. If you've been to a Chick-fil-A, you would say Chick-fil-A, and you'd probably say that because of their customer service. Yeah, I don't get a Walmart drive through clerk saying, my pleasure. In fact, a Chick-fil-A clerk can say that so much, I just want to slap him and say, quit doing that. That's weird. One time, and then tell me thank you after that. But it's ingrained in their culture. In fact, I begin to read up. And somebody asked Dan Cathy, the CEO of Chick-fil-A, they said, does Chick-fil-A's commitment to be kind to employees and provide heartfelt hospitality to the customers, does it make the food taste better? Dan Cathy says it sure does, and the numbers back him up. The 66-year-old family-owned business is now the second largest quick service chain in the country. Chick-fil-A does more business in its six-day week, they're closed on Sunday, than McDonald's does in seven. Turnover among Chick-fil-A's 61,000 employees is a third of the industry average. What's the secret, they asked Kathy. And Kathy shared the company's purpose statement. Here's the difference. He said, I quote, to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us. Every employee sees this, by the way. To have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. He goes on to say, every life has a story. And often our customers and our employees need a little grace and a little space when you deal with them because they are either experiencing a problem, just finished having a problem, or about to have one. He says the word restaurant means place of restoration. And we think of Chick-fil-A as an oasis where people can be restored. We strive to treat people better than the place down the street. One way we do that is by remembering that we're all people with a lot of emotional things going on that don't necessarily show on the surface. So we try to offer amenities and kindness that minister to the heart. Wait a second, are we talking about a restaurant? This is unbelievable. And if a restaurant can be an oasis where people come to be restored and where gratefulness and graciousness flow abundantly, how much more should the church of the living God be that way? Oh, we should be a place that is just bubbling over with grace and gratefulness towards one another. And when that happens, guess who gets all the attention? Jesus. You want Jesus to be recognized in this place? Get along with each other. That's what Paul is saying. But he's saying there's a second thing that happens when we're grateful and gracious to one another. He's saying joy permeates the church. No, there's like a sense of gladness all around to both the leaders and the congregation as a whole. I'll say it this way. When a church is grateful and gracious, it guarantees gladness. It doesn't just glow for the gospel. It guarantees gladness. Look at verse 16. He says that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. That I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Here's what Paul's saying. I might die soon. Maybe in just a few short weeks I'm going to stand before Caesar. And we've already talked about it. He's already declared, when I do, I'm not backing down. I'm not shutting up. I will defend the gospel with the utmost boldness. 
but it might mean he will sentence me to death. But if he does, listen church, I'll still have joy because the investment I made in you paid off if I hear that you're getting along. If I hear you're demonstrating Christ-like humility toward one another and, and you're experiencing harmony among each other, I'll be so pleased and I can't help but make this point. A unified church makes for a happy pastor. It just does. I guess the, maybe the, the, the closest comparison I could have that would know the truth of this is a mom. Unified children make for happy mothers. You ever drove down the road and your kids are in the back fighting? And it just ruins a vacation. And that, that, that's what Paul's getting at. He's saying this as, as, the, as the founding pastor of this church. To hear that you are demonstrating humility toward one another. Oh man, it'll, it'll make my heart so happy. And on the flip side of the coin, the implication is clear. That nothing is more stressful for a spiritual leader than when people are fighting. And I think it's demonstrated well by, by the fact that our church, the previous pastor was 25 years in his tenure. My dad has been here nearly 40 years. The pastor nearly 20 years. I think that's, that's a pretty good demonstration that you haven't stressed your pastors out too much. Congratulations. Honestly, this place is a place of harmony. It's a place of humility. I would in no way indicate, I wouldn't even preach that, that we are nothing short of that. I would only urge you, church, keep being that. Keep climbing down the ladder for each other. It makes for a less stressed pastor. But it's not just about making our pastor happy. We know that. Because Paul says the gladness extends beyond its leaders. He says it's actually joy all around. The culture of this place, the climate of this place is one of gladness. Look at the next verse in verse 18 and we'll be done. For the same cause also do ye joy, church. And rejoice with me. Listen, if there's graciousness going on and gratefulness going on, it guarantees that when people walk in this place, they're going to sense just this, this authentic joy in this place. Kind of like I do when I walk into Chick-fil-A. In all seriousness, you look at the drive through line and you look at the line waiting to, at the counter and I'm thinking to myself, if I was one of them working, I would be stressed out to the max. I'd be unhappy. I'd be rude. That's why I should probably work at McDonald's. <laughs> but they don't. That's not the culture of that place. It doesn't matter if, if, if both lines in the drive-thru are a block deep. Those people are still saying, my pleasure, and acting like they actually mean it. There's sincere gladness. And the church ought to have that and can have that why is it so important that we do though i'll tell you why because we live in a sad world are you hearing me we live in a sad world turn on the news go on twitter man we live in a cynical negative pessimistic sad world and it's imperative that when people come in here they sense something different they see a gladness that permeates the place. You know why? Because sad people walk in these doors every week. I'm thinking about, a, 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 about the woman, the, the single mom whose husband just left her alone to raise two kids. 
She's desperate and knows she needs to go to church somewhere. And so she finds herself at Fellowship Baptist Church on a Sunday morning. Hey, she needs to walk into this place and she needs to sense gladness. I'm thinking about the man who just lost his job and has no idea how he's going to pay the bills and supply for his family. He's stressed out. He's worried to death. He needs to walk into Fellowship Baptist Church on a Sunday, and he needs to walk into a place of gladness. I'm thinking about the little girl that rides one of our church buses. She has to get herself out of bed, and she has to dress herself because mom and dad were hung over from the night before. Her little heart doesn't comprehend everything about her home, but her little heart aches because she has to go to church by herself. And when she gets on the bus, she needs to see a glad bus driver and a glad, a glad bus captain and a glad bus worker. And when she goes up to children's church, she needs to see a, a glad children's church worker. Thinking about the employer that right before he comes to church has a long-time employee call him and quit without giving him a two-weeks notice. It's Sunday morning. He has no idea how he's going to replace him. He doesn't even feel like coming, but he, but he talks himself into coming. And he needs to walk into a place that is not contentious and not complaining and not sad, but a place of authentic joy. Hey, I'm thinking about a young couple with two to three kids, and they do everything they can to get to church on Sunday morning. They wrestle the kids out of bed, and instantly the kids are whining. That creates stress. And the couple starts arguing with each other the entire way to church, at least until they get out of their car and have to put on their church face. Mom is still wiping milk stains off of Johnny's mouth as they walk in, and Dad is trying to soothe little Susie from crying as they drop her off at her Sunday school class, and the couple comes into their adult Bible class, and they sit down, and they feel like they've been through a tornado and barely survived. The last thing that couple needs is to sit in the midst of a negative, complaining people. They need to sense joy. They need to sense gladness. I'm thinking about the man or the woman that might be in here this very moment and they've been down a dark road, they've been down an addictive road, they've been down a destructive road of drugs and alcohol and sex and anything that feels good in the moment and all they came for today was a little bit of hope. They need to look around here and because of the sincere gladness and the gratefulness and the graciousness among the people in this place, they sense the possibility that they too can have that same gladness and that there just might be hope hope for them I'm thinking about the widow or the widow the widower for the day that comes to church by themselves maybe for the first time I want to whole your damn family to walk into a place that is glad. No, we're sad with you. And we grieve with you. But they don't need to be surrounded by contention and complaint. And we have hurting people that make their way into this room every single Sunday. And God, help us to be a place of joy for them. When a church is grateful and gracious, it glows for the gospel and guarantees gladness. God help us be that kind of church 
where we're working out among each other the gratefulness and graciousness that God is working in each of our hearts. If you agree with the Bible today, say amen. How should I respond? Well, if you're a Christian today, that means you know Jesus. Then I want you to ask yourself, are you working out what God is working in? When you heard that message last week about climbing down the ladder of humility, are you thinking to yourself, yeah, I'll do it for everyone but them? Listen, friend, I'm glad Jesus didn't say that. Well, I'll die for everyone but that person. No, understand God is working in you. If you let him, he's working in you the supernatural fruits of the spirit, love and joy and peace and longsuffering and gentleness and meekness and faith and temperance. And all you have to do is obey him and walk in the spirit and those things just become evident in your life. And you've got to let God work that through you. And maybe you need to repent of a lack of humility in your life today. I'm thinking of the Christian in here who, if you're honest, you, you've just gotten very, very, very cynical. And if our church was represented by you and your spirit, we wouldn't be a place of grace. If, you're, if you were the poster child of Fellowship Baptist Church, people wouldn't see Jesus through you. Not by how you talk at work. Not by how you treat your wife. Not by how you ignore your kids. Not how about you gossip about the lady working in the other nursery. And maybe you need to repent of that today. I wonder if there's someone in here that says, I want so badly to glow for the gospel, but I don't know Jesus. It's, it's so very simple. It's almost so simple it's hard to believe. If you want to know Jesus, you just have to admit that you're a sinner. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And then you have to believe that Jesus died for your sin. But God showed his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then you're going to have to do what we're going to give you an opportunity to do in a moment. And that's call upon God to save you. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We had a lady walk the aisle last week and call upon the name of the Lord and accept Christ into her life. Maybe today's your day and you need to do that. And if you can find no other reason but to humble yourself at an altar and pray, would you do this? Would you just be the church for the Jordan family and come and pray for grace on their behalf? I've already prayed out loud. Would you just join me at the altar and praying for the next few days that they're going to face? Church, you did that for our family. And I want to return the favor and do that for another family that's hurting today. Would you join with me in that? And maybe whenever your family goes through something, we can do it for you. Because that's what the church is all about. Would you please stand to your feet, every head bowed and every eye closed.